Welcome to the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton-Rossini. Join us here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock, or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Podserve, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first. Kalima Overton Amin is a policy analyst for the federal government, and I only mention that because her attention to detail came in really handy. Once she realized she was a victim and shaken to her very core by the man she knew as her husband, the name of her book, Hidden in Plain Sight, Are You Being Groomed for Love Bombing, Spirit Breaking, and Abandonment? Disturbing to say the least. Yes, it is. Um, my book is a result of... Um, my husband took my son and I on a vacation and abandoned us there. And um, we came back and he was gone. And we never saw him again until I took him to court. And then I found out he had done this more than once or something similar for the same outcome. And I interviewed other women who um, had experienced abandonment, women who were Muslim, Christian, Catholic, you know, African-American, South American, Caucasian, from different backgrounds. And um, because because um, I'm a policy analyst, I analyze the policy and procedure of abandonment, the grooming process. What what are the nine flags? You know, I developed nine red flags, eight steps to recovery. But I looked at it from the angle of the policy and of compliance and how to mitigate risk and how to protect yourself and your family members or your friends from the grooming process and how to recognize it, how to pull them out, how to protect yourself and how to recover if you miss all of those nine red flags. So in a nutshell, that's what my book is about. Darn. So do you go through your experience? Um, I do. During COVID, we moved from Maryland to Virginia Beach to take care of my dad, who's terminally ill. And so we hadn't been on vacation for about two years. And you would think that the type of people that do this are people who are kind of transient on the outskirts of the community. He was an assistant principal at a high school for 10 years. He was working at the local university, seemingly a very stable person on paper, you know, a family person on paper. But in my book, I do talk about how you have to really do a background check on people because even people who are good on paper are not good morally and ethically. And these are the very people that do this because like with his previous wife, they know they're not going to fight back because they're afraid because this person has a slew of degrees or they have some type of prestige or they have some type of power in the community. And so people don't even know that they're behaving this way because no one who's going to take that person to court. Right. How long were you married? We were married for four years. Were you happy? Yes, that's the thing, because this is part of the narcissistic personality disorder. They live a double life. And so he right up until the week of the abandonment, there was no clue or no signs, of, you know, supposedly. But now that I know I did the research, I know there were signs that I didn't understand. But he pretended like everything was great. In fact, he actually has a few books out himself. And so the week before I had planned a book launch party for him, he was there singing my praises. And so people were like, you must be making this up because we just saw him last week, you know, live on Facebook talking about how wonderful you are, how, you know, wonderful it is to have a wife that can support you this way. Oh, yeah. This was for the, you know, for the public at that time. Found out later that he did this to his previous wife 
but he came home and put her out. And when she was packing her things in the course of her moving out, she found my engagement ring. Well, it turns out his family, you know, they knew that he did this type of thing, but I guess they were kind of hoping he wouldn't do it again. Um, so when, when we came back from this infamous vacation, uh, two weeks later, I had to put my dad in hospice because I had him at home the whole time, which is why my then husband said, oh, you need to go on a vacation. You've been working so hard and taking care of your dad. I was working around the clock. I was still in the federal government. It was during COVID and I was working at HHS, which we had to build like 460 clinics during COVID. And so we were working around the clock. Um, so this was the purpose of supposedly of the vacation. So when we get there um, on a Friday night, we're down in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And then Saturday morning, he's, I'm leaving. Like, what, and we're still in our pajamas. And I have my nephew with me who is 13 and my son who was 14. And he just leaves. They don't see him leaving. So I just pretend nothing has happened. We go on with the vacation. And I call my sister. I'm kind of hysterical. And she's like, just stay calm, you know. Well, he took me away because my family was here. And so it separated me physically from my family. So they couldn't immediately come to help me. I wasn't in danger. I'm a grown woman. I've traveled out of the country by myself, but I'm down in South Carolina with two kids and now he's gone. And so by the time I come back, all of this stuff is gone from the house. Like we were never married. Like we, he was never here. So when I interview women from different backgrounds and religious, uh, social, economic, and racial, ethnic backgrounds, they tell the same story. One woman was abandoned on the honeymoon. Um, one, one woman, you know, it was just always this process. What do these guys have to gain? What, what are they gaining from doing this? What do they get? Nothing. Do they get a divorce settlement? No. In fact, I got almost everything. I took him to court. <laughs> the other people he did this to did not take him to court because he seemingly he has some kind of prestige or power, but he doesn't, you know, and so they look at that because he has so many degrees, you know, he has a PhD and some people may look at that, but I'm like, I work with PhDs all the time. So I'm not impressed by this. You know, it's not, I'm not intimidated by this, you know? It's a, it's a mental illness. You know, narcissism, people use the word loosely, but it's really a mental illness. And they attach themselves to people just like a leech. The person either has some type of financial benefit to them, or they may perceive them as being powerful in the community, or they just have a stable family. They have something that they want. It could be you're just arm candy. You know, it's always going to be something that they want to gain from you. But once they use you up, or once you realize that they're not who they say they are, then they'll do the disappearing at the discard. So it's always the grooming process where, you know, they're very amenable. They shower you, your family, your friends, they groom everyone around you into thinking that they're this wonderful person, that they're very a helpful person. And then after that, they start to demean and diminish you privately, you know, but publicly, they're still being this wonderful person. And one of the examples I like to give is like, let's say you're having a birthday party the run-of-the-mill jerk would show up at your birthday party late, cause a commotion, start an argument. Everyone's looking like, what is wrong with him? And he would just make a complete fool of himself because he's mad at you about something. But the narcissist will show up on time with the best gift possible. Everyone will be like swooning over you, hugs and kisses. He's all smiles, but he would whisper, you know, derogatory things in your ear. Or once everyone leaves, now he's going to demean you. You know, who are you to have a party? Are you trying to embarrass me? Why are you trying to get all this attention? You're nobody. You know, it's, that's the difference between just the jerk and the narcissist because he grooms people 
around you. So when you report the abuse, mental, physical, spiritual, or financial abuse, they're going to say, oh, no, he's always putting money in the collection plate. Oh, no, he's always volunteering at the church. Or he's a doctor. He's a minister. He's a teacher. You know, he wouldn't do this. He's always nice to me. He cuts my grass for me, you know, because they groom people. So when they commit this abuse, then no one will believe you. And that's why people don't typically take them to court. Wow. You know? I, I'm surprised you're as mentally grounded as you are. I was a hot mess. <laughs> I was a hot mess. I was not suicidal, but I was definitely almost homicidal because my son was involved. And when we got married, he pursued me. I wasn't even thinking about getting married. He just pursued me. And then I found out he was at my mother's funeral when he had no purpose for being there. Oh. And then my brother was like, I remember seeing him, but didn't know who he was. Because he said, I pretty much knew everyone at the funeral, but he had groomed me from that point. And then when he finally, you know, started conversations with me, because we had mutual um, friends in our religious community, he said, I wanted to speak with you last year, but I know you lost your mom. I want to give you time to, you know, heal and space. And so it made me think he was a good guy. But then in the end, fast forward, I find out during that time, he was still living and married with his wife. And so he was doing that during that time he was getting rid of her and she doesn't know. It was just, you know, all a setup. I was definitely traumatized, but I was able to recover quicker because I fought him in court. The judges know about this behavior. So when I'm thinking that I'm alone and my attorney's like, oh no, the judge is very clear on what's happening. And then I was able to win in court. I think that's, it helped me to heal because I was in counseling. I had two therapists. I had a male therapist and a female therapist. Oh, my <laughs> just, goodness. You know, I felt like if I don't fight this, I would never be the same person again. Yeah. And you would think and sometimes people think, oh, they must you know, prey on women who have a low self-esteem. But it's the opposite because yeah. the bigger the fish, the bigger the, you know, the trophy, you know. And so it's almost like a game to them. Like if I can snag this person and then just use them up and ruin their life and cast them, it makes them feel good. Yeah. So it doesn't make them feel good to to do that to someone who already, you know, has low self-esteem and doesn't have anything to offer, you know, but if they could do this to a, you know, a quote unquote big fish, then they can get a big trophy and feel good about themselves and they just move on. It's just fascinating that anybody could do something like this, that you could live with yourself. Yes. Now I'm hosting... Uh, roundtable conversations in small venues, you know, no more than 30 people. And they are, you know, they come and we have conversations about these are the red flags. This is how you can protect yourself, protect your families. I'm in conversations with um, Hampton University. They have um, Taraji P. Henson has wellness centers at Hampton University and they have these wellness pods. And so I'm talking with them and they're considering putting my book in their wellness pods. Because, you know, That's really the book is suitable, you know, for someone 16 and up, you know, if, because that grooming process is actually done even with teenagers, with college students, even with 60 and 70 year old, you know, um, people, they're still behaving in this way. And so we have to really, um, the other thing with all of the women in my book, the other common thing was you would think they were all married to the same man. Like all of us were married to this one person because the behavior of these people is identical. It's cookie cutter, but you don't know it unless you know what the flags are. So you don't realize what, you don't know what you're looking at, right? 
And so when I interviewed all the women, um, you know, the same thing. It was a quick courtship, grooming this, grooming them. If they're not amenable, they groom the family. They rush into the courtship, rush into the marriage because they don't want you to realize who and what they are because they can only keep up this facade for so long right. before it starts to crumble. And once it crumbles, that's when you're in the most danger, just like with physical abuse. Once you try to leave, that's when you're in the most danger. But with these people, once you realize who they are, all of them have secret addictions, drugs, alcohol, sex. There's some secret addiction that they're also hiding. And once you realize they're not who they say they are, that's when you're in the most danger because narcissism is on a spectrum and the highest end of the spectrum is the serial killer. And that the low end of the spectrum is that person that's overindulged, you know, just full of themselves and they're not any harm to anyone physically, you know, but they can wreak havoc in your life. Right. And so it wasn't until because I'm a policy analyst, I started researching not to write the book. I was just researching just to figure out like, what kind of person does this? Who does this to someone? Who does this to children? You know, and and so I just started researching that for my own well-being without the intention of writing a book. And it just kind of evolved from there. I, I did a series of articles in um, the Muslim Journal. They invited me to do seven weeks of a column on abandonment in the Muslim community. And that's when I was contacted by some was on Facebook and they were like, wait a minute, you didn't talk about us. It just doesn't happen to Muslims. But I'm thinking it's just in the Muslim community because we typically are going to have a short courtship. And this is a breeding ground for men like this. But then other women were reaching out to me to say, hey, this doesn't just happen in the Muslim community. This happens all over. And so that's how I ended up, you know, seeking out women who are Muslim, Christian and Catholic for the book, you know, to show that it is not just a problem in those religions or in the religious community. It's not a white privilege problem or, you know, a, a black problem. It's not a problem for young people. It's, a, it's not a problem for people who are uneducated or low self-esteem. It just runs across the board because these people just prey on all, you know, types of situations. It's, it's a crime of opportunity. Right? Very scary. I'd be scared to death to fall in love ever again. I wouldn't even cross the street with a man much less go someplace. And I was thinking when I came home, how we went out of the country together, you know, and anything could have happened. Right. And and so my therapist, when I said, I guess I should be lucky. I didn't wake up with a pillow over my face. And she said, you're making, so you're being facetious. She said, but this is real. She said, I see it all the time. So these types of people do kill their family just to be rid of them. Jeez. And she said, you are lucky that you didn't, because he, she said he did everything that someone does when they take the family away and kill them except for kill you. Wow. And so, you know, when you look at true crime TV and you see people go away on cruises and somebody falls overboard, this is not an accident or they fall off a cliff and we went hiking and we did this and I don't know what happened and they come home alone. Right. Yeah. You know, and so my therapist was like, no, this really happens and you're very lucky. Well, you know what? I think in the end, this is exactly what you were intended to do. Mm. Like, like as low as you got, as horrible as it was, as hurt as you were, you have emerged victorious here with this book and you are going to save who knows how many other people from the same thing you went through. I hope so. I hope so. What a pleasure talking to you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> 
Next up, Norm Nelson. He was a cop in L.A. from 1968 to 91, which is a story in itself. But then he decided to start riding bulls. And in his book, A Heart Too Far, he traces his bronco-busting career and a fictional love interest. All right. So um, you're a cop in L.A. That's not enough. You got to get on a bull. Yeah. Well, I was a detective working inside, so my weekends were free. And I, I, I we had police rodeos at the time, so... It was an it was an easy trans it was an easy transition mentally. It was I had to get in better shape. And I didn't start young. I started at thirty-eight. Jeez. When you watch bull riders, the, your back, your shoulder, you're thrown all over the place. You break them all. I broke my back twice. I crushed the front of my face, the left side of my face. Why do you want to do that? <laughs> um well, it's not the rush. It's just it's like being a cop. I fell in love with being a cop. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I worked some very, uh, very dangerous uh, jobs as a, as a cop. Besides mm-hmm. gangs and everything else. And we, we, I worked a unit where we followed bad people who did armed robberies and shot people. So this is loosely based on you, your book, A Heart Too Far? Well, yeah, Heart Too Far is, is what I'm just, I'm picking up the end of what drives men crazy because drives men crazy ends in 91. And then a Heart Too Far picks up the next part of my life for the next 10 years. Which is not published by Fulton. No, no. Can I pick up your book, A Heart Too Far, without reading your first book and still get the gist of what's going on? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, both books are standalone, but they, they, they just cover the period from uh, 68 through uh, 2000. Okay. Did you meet this young lady in real life or did, is that the fictional part? Uh, no, I, I did meet a girl named Jackie in real life. And she was that, that really sharp mouth, really unbelievable. The first time I met her, she was flanking bulls. I was getting on a bull and she says, you better screw your cowboy hat down cowboy because this bull's gonna throw your ass off <laughs> and, I, and i gave her some crap back and she, i said well i was getting on the bull i was rosning up my rope i said you know if i ride this bull you owe me a dance and a beer and uh, so i rode the dare i rode the bull and then i i met jackie now beyond certain points it becomes fictional but i wanted to take the story to the end of it but first First, I had to back the story up from she was actually 25 to her being 17. And that's how where I started in the book. Okay, so she was she was legal in real life. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, 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 nothing <laughs> happened. We're just, just friendship. And I meet her parents. And, it, and it's a fun time. And I really don't see anything happening between me and her. It's more of like, hey, you know, stay over there. And you're kind of fun to talk to. And she's she is really, she's the, the focal point of the book because no matter what happens to her as her, after I leave, because I have to, I go back every year after the rodeo season and she marries the town's rich boy, Pat, who abuses the hell out of her and then pays her money even after he's married to have sex with her. And she takes the money and gives it to her mom who's dying of cancer. And it's about me after a period of time, I get hurt. I see her for six years from 91 to 96, even though she's married, we still spend this time in this kind of room of 412 in the old Douglas hotel. And we still make love. And we, even though she's married and, and we're in the same town and the rodeo's going on. And then I get hurt in 97 and I don't see her till 99. And then I come back to find her and I find out she's a, 
working in a whorehouse, dancing there, and she's strung out in heroin. Oh. Are you able to help her at this point? Yeah. I get her back. This this ends as like most of these stories do in some ways, but this the, the ending is real different. I can't tell you. Good. Because you, you'll never suspect the ending. Oh, you may, but it's it's just different. So even though you come back into her life and you're able to get her off heroin and get her back to you and her family, something totally out of left field happens at the end. Yes. Yes. Okay. And and in between time, she has a very good girlfriend named Peggy. Mm -hmm. And Peggy's been abused a lot by her mother, who's a drunk. And Jackie all the time spends her youth taking care of Peggy. And so finally... One morning, Peggy wakes up and her mom's gone. And so she brings her bag and clothes and she brings it over to Jackie's house with a letter from her mom that basically says, I was beat as a little girl and I can't stop doing it. I can't keep from doing it to my own daughter. And she just disappears. And she seeks out her best friend. Yes. And then I leave in 96 and don't come back because I get hurt by the bulls. They really screw me up. I can't walk. And, and, and then I get hurt again and break my neck about a, one year before I come back in 98. So it keeps me out of commission and unable to get back to see her. Did you really break your neck in real life? Yep. I broke my back twice. I broke my neck. I've crushed the front of my face, the left side of my face. But I had really good a good doctors that put most of me back together. You can't tell unless I actually showed you the scars. Do, do you make a ton of money or something? Do I make? No. Like, like, do you make enough money to pay for broken backs, broken necks, and facial reconstruction? I pay insurance like, <laughs> like everybody else does. Like, you know, bull riders are crazy because what we do is we risk everything for very little money. As you know, most bull riders don't make the tens of millions. I was lucky because as a champion, I had a sponsor. Oh, so, so that's that's how you have to you have to get really good. at it. I was the police champion and I was a champion, the senior pro. And you have to have sponsor money to live. Yeah. Do you have a wife and a family? Uh, I have two boys. I've had four wives. I was going to say it'd be hard to live with somebody like you. <laughs> <laughs> Honey, yeah, uh, when that broken wives. neck heals, are you going to get back on the bull? Sure. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Well, you're gone a lot. You can never hold anything together when you're gone all the time. And the same way as a cop, I got up on Monday morning working undercover for seven years. And I, I came home at Friday night or Saturday, whenever. So, you know, you just stay in that world. Right. Why, why the title a heart too far? Well, the title is because we, we meet each other. And because of the break in our, in our love affair, we don't get back to each other to the next year. And, and we just let things go until that time period. And it seems like you, once you meet, it doesn't matter because nothing really has changed. When there's really love there, nothing changes. Right. Nothing needs to be said or be explained or apologized for. Okay. So I have a feeling you know how to promote your books. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just, it's just, it's just, it's a good book. I'm, I'm not a good writer, but it's a very good book. <laughs> but you must know how to talk up those books. Yeah. 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 What do you do? Give me, give, give our listeners some hints here. Cause that's the hardest thing for a lot of people. Well, the trick to what I do is because I've lived that life. I've been a cowboy and cop and I've done all those things. 
Right. I mean, I've been shot at. I've shot people. I've done every every good thing, bad thing you can do as a cop. And mm-hmm. the same thing with riding bulls. I've accomplished all the things I can. Ac- I'd like to accomplish a couple more things. But the bottom line is that you accomplish things, but you pay a price. You pay a price from being a cop. You pay a price of losing your family. You don't lose your sons, but you lose your wives. Hmm. When you ride bulls, you lose your health. And you, you know, I get up in the morning in sections and I, I still walk every day. I live here by the lake in Texas, by Belt Lake. And, and uh, I walk every day and I still write all the time. I write every day, seven days a week, 10 till three in the morning. Darn. And I've written three books. My other book is with Crazy George and I'm working on another cop novel now. And I started all this when I was 67. Oh, you're such an inspiration. And I'm 80 now. I'm not a big man. I'm like most bull riders, five foot eight, 160 pounds. I still can do pull-ups. I can still walk two hours if I have to. Norm, bet you're fun at a book signing. Yeah. Like I've got a, a book signing coming up in Prescott in 4th of July, but it's a bunch of old cops that I worked with and all their families and new cops. And it's held at a buddy of mine's house. And then I have a, I'm working on one in LA now with some old friends and people that have contacts. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So basically you're just sticking with what you know. Yeah. I get my money back and, and I make some money. I'm still, the first book is still selling. That's great. And I mean, I don't do a lot, but I mean, th- this year, this year I'm going to have to, you know, get more into the electronics end of it, you know, besides, I don't really want to go on TikTok, but I guess I'm going to have to get face, get a Facebook and that type of thing, you know? Yeah. So you've done this without Facebook this far. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the, the trick in life is just to keep reaching. Don't ever stop. Don't don't ever get up one morning and say this chair and this TV is my is my last resort. You can't do it because you're not interesting to anybody else and worse because you're not interesting to yourself. Thank you, Norm. I will take that with me today. <laughs> well, you're, thank you very much. I hope I didn't bore you too much. No, Norm. What made you switch publishers? Well, I switched because I went. I had a big book signing in, in Arizona where I had because of my rodeo background. I go back there to see a lot of friends, and I needed a bunch of books. I needed a hundred books, and they sent me seven. <gasps> mm. When when you're signing books, a hundred books is a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And uh, they just they stood me up. Once they got me out the door with the contact was minimal and you couldn't depend on them. If you had a question or anything, you couldn't get an answer back. Right. And I can live with that, but I couldn't live without having the books. If I needed a hundred books, you needed to get them to me. Right. And if Fulton, if you ask Fulton for a hundred books, they're there. Right now they're saying they'll go to get them for me. So (laughs) all I can go is what I can do. Yeah. I'm sure they will. Yeah. I'm sure they will. Otherwise you call me Norm. (laughs) well you sound like a very young woman oh no i'm not (laughs) but thanks so much you sound like a young man (laughs) (laughs) well it's 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 the enthusiasm that we go with life through life with it makes us young that's right people it's the people we've always surrounded i I, I've, i've always told my kids always surround yourself around good people yep and, and people that are always not reaching to get rich, but reaching to make themselves better. 
Yep. And, but I'm sure you know about that. You're in this business all the time. You sound like you've been in it a long time. Yeah, a couple few. couple few. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> been around. <laughs> all right. Listen, Norm, thanks so much. I really enjoyed this. Oh, me too. You have call a great me day. Again. Okay, get, Norm. Get tired one day, call me again. All righty. All right. See you later. You You got it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Time now for a children's book that encourages little girls to build on their ability to do anything and everything connected to science, technology, engineering, and math. Written by Caitlin Payne, entitled Camille Pepper's Little Pink Toolbox. Now, tell me about this course you took that inspired your book. Um, So it was actually in a course, it's a digital media program uh, through a school called uh, JATC here in Utah. Um, the Technology Student Association is an association that uh, puts on CTE programs and competitions for students. And one of the competitions uh, a couple years ago was to uh, create a STEM-themed children's book. Um, and so I wanted to participate in that one. I did a board game uh, as a part of a team. This book was a an independent project, but I did a board game as part of the team. And then my STEM themed book, and they actually both were first place winners in the state of Utah. That's great. What what made you take this class? Um, I think the program is great. It offers a lot of opportunities to do like the career certification type stuff that I couldn't necessarily get through traditional high school classes. Okay. Um, and I thought it was an awesome opportunity. I actually, as much as I love doing art, I've only ever taken one art class before that particular course. Um, and I wasn't really interested in taking another just because I had done a lot of independent work, mm-hmm. um, improving my skills. And I felt like I was going back on a lot of the stuff I had learned and just you know repeating it um, because I hadn't taken an actual course in that before. Okay. But this one, I was just really drawn to it. I felt like there were so many opportunities and I I really loved it. It it was great. I focused on graphic design near the end of the course, but in the beginning of the course, it was a lot of great exploration into camera work and 3D animation and lots of cool stuff. And and out of that came Camille Pepper's Little Pink Toolbox. Yeah, that's correct. So how did we get there? How did we get from there to here? Um, It was a long process. Um, I I started with um, kind of storyboarding. I I feel like when most people think of STEM, they think of like the uh, scientists, you know, creating robots. And so that's where I started with that. And I also just love the the classic little, you know, boxy metal robot. I think that's always been a super cute um, kind of stereotypical design. Um, but I went through a few drafts and I, you know, I got some feedback. I got some feedback from some actual kids to see how they like the story, um, which ended up, you know, going pretty well. I got some really good feedback was to adjust some things. Um, I worked with a couple of the people that I thank um, in my about the author section. Mm-hmm. They were super big helps in the development process. So this is about a little girl who loves to build. How, how old is she? Um, I would say she's probably seven or eight, maybe 10 at the oldest. So, so she gets out the Legos and, you know, she can make things happen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, right. Which you think of boys, right? You always give, you always give the little boys the Legos and they're building, yeah. they're building hotels by the time they're 10 with the Legos, with windows and all that kind of stuff. So this little girl shows an affinity for building. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so what happens to her? So she um, has this toy box that she goes through and she meets the the other uh, main character of the story, which is Mr. Robot. Um, and she finds that he just needs some help, but he's a little bit um, stubborn or a little bit kind of ornery. And so she's trying to say, you know, like, I can help you. And he is just not a super fan, but she ends up like proving that, you know, I, I can do this. This is good for you and me. Um, and Mr. Robot just really does not think that there's anything that she can do to help him. Right. And she ends up, you know, going through the process of like, I can fix your wheels. I can take the rust away um, and do all this sort of stuff. And she just goes through this process of just fixing the little things that have kind of fallen into disrepair as he's sat. Um, and so it kind of goes through that. It goes through repairing the wheels and it goes through changing the light bulb that's on his he- little head. <laughs> Um, and then at the end, you know, the, the reason that he's a little bit ornery is because he's been in this toy box and I think he's felt a little lonely and, uh, you know, it's just that feeling of like, he's just, he's feeling a little bit left behind. Mm -hmm. And so to kind of help him with that feeling by the end, um, she kind of surprises him with this little friend who is a little robotic dog, um, that he can kind of feel less lonely with in the toolbox. That is wonderful. It, you know, as part of your research, did you find that there were other books that are encouraging little girls or about little girls doing more of this kind of thing? I definitely think that there are a few other books that are working with the same idea, but I definitely don't think it's enough. I kind of wanted to contribute to that um, you know, the initial theme of the book was just supposed to be STEM. But of course, as a, a girl growing up myself, I knew the experience of like feeling like you couldn't really produce something that was worth it. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to contribute more to to books that were telling little girls that they could because I just felt like, you know, even though the, there are some and there's definitely some pretty prolific authors that have contributed to that, I don't think there can ever be enough. No, I agree. I agree with you 100%. I think this is great. I would think that this would be such a fun book to go out and read to other, you know, read to little girls. Well, little boys too, because little boys need to know that little girls can do this kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. Um, So um, Fulton Books, um, they've been helping kind of do a social media boosting. So they've set me up with, you know, some accounts on Instagram, Facebook and whatnot. Um, I've also just kind of in my smaller community of people that support my book, you know, my friends and family, whom I'm so, so grateful for. Um, I've seen just like a massive amount of support for them, just buying it for any kid in their life that they can think of, whether it's your uh, best friend's little sister's niece or something. Um, I just see it like they've come out in droves just um buying and and loving the book and of course you know with every sell that there is there's um you know a little bit of boost in recognition right are you doing anything yourself uh yeah yeah i post about it all the time um i try to talk to you know other people um i am thinking about kind of getting involved with my local bookstores or libraries um something that i'm kind of getting set up is getting a handful of copies um, and, you know, signing it, putting a little note and donating it to uh, the local elementary schools kind of in the district that I grew up in. 
That's a great idea. I bet you if they knew that you wrote this book, they'd have you come in and read. Yeah, I think that would be great. You going to keep doing it? You going to keep going? Um, I I don't know. I I sure hope so. Um, if I can find the space, I mean, I definitely am kind of striving towards a creative career. Um, whether that's going to be continuing to publish books or, you know, something along those lines, um, I'm certainly hoping for it, kind of working towards it. Great. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you, Caitlin. It was good talking to you too. Finally, Leon Mason survived a devastating car crash in 1994 that left him with a severe brain injury. Some rough years followed, but in 2021, he managed to write and publish a book based on his remarkable life story entitled The Life of Tony Marciano. Now he's back with part two of his series entitled Maya Marciano. So lead us into this second book. He had a wild, dangerous life. First, it was, you know, it was cool, chill. Then he got hit by a, excuse me, a severe car accident. And he got hit by a school bus. He was in a coma for two months. And he, severe, he suffered a severe brain injury. And his lifestyle changed. And he just started living a little more ruthless. And he got in a lot of trouble and stuff. But then he started getting like together as he started having kids. And he ended up getting for going into a situation with his daughter's mother. And he ended up getting full custody of his daughter. And Throughout the whole story, you know, he had his daughter swimming and everything, but he ended up passing away. He hit by a, a garbage truck and he ended up dying in a car accident. But it comes out and it looks like the Paul Fifty died the very end of part one. And it, it looks like he was hit in a car accident, but then when the trash he was hit by a garbage truck, a trash truck, and when the trash truck hit him, it kept going and it was never found. And it comes out in part two that it was intentional and it seemed like he was somebody tried to kill him and they was trying to figure out who it was so that leads on to part three but then also in part two it's mainly about Maya Marciano and her swimming she swims and she goes through a lot of stuff in her life alone with trying to get to the Olympics so the second book we find out that Tony Marciano didn't die by accident he was you know somebody killed him correct and and we go on to somehow his daughter manages to get through this? Yes. She strives to the Olympics for her father because he really wanted to go, so she's really trying to go to the Olympics for him. But she likes it too. She she tries to go to the Olympics several times. She has three. The first time she doesn't make it, and that's because of uh, it was another competitor. She swimmer there that ended up beating her, but she went to a young age, so she would try again several years later. And she went up getting a boyfriend, you know, they had a close relationship, but at the beginning of the story, she witnessed, and it was in her and her, when she was young, her mother took her and her brothers to uh, swimming, and on their way to the swimming pool, they stopped at a 7-Eleven, and while they was there, 7-Eleven got robbed, and the cashier got got shot and killed, and the, the, the robber pointed a gun at his mother, but he had a mask, but she seen his eyes and she said she will always remember his eyes because she had him such fear. He didn't kill her, but he threatened to kill her life and he ran. And she said she will always remember his eyes, but she didn't know who it was, his mask. And that comes out later on in the story and it has something to do with Maya Marciano, her relationship she gets into. And it's just a lot of twists and turns. I don't want to tell too much of the story, but it's very interesting the way it connects. But you got to read this the book to understand it more in details. It's an inspirational story, I believe, to families who've been in situations who I was in, to be a constant, um, 
I live and how I was able to create other lives that, you know, had, had so many other things I was able to do in my life after my accident. And it, it's just a big inspiration. And I know the depression that families go through when they experience somebody who's in a severe accident, anything like that, severity, and end up in a, having a brain injury, something close to death, and how the family pulls together and everything. And it's very interesting. It's like, it's more about my life story and, it, and my family reminds me of how important family is. And it, I could tell my life story, but like I tell everybody, it's on YouTube under Rescue 911, Cobra School Bus. It's a very good story. And that just starts it off. And after you, read, after you see that show, you're going to want to read the first book. And after you read the first book, you want to read the second book. And then it just get better and better from there. So the books are very interesting. Were you able to build some kind of interest in your first book? Yes, I did. I got I got a lot of interest in my first book. I was uh, passing out uh, business cards for part one, and I, I got business cards for part two. I've been passing those out. I was putting up flyers for part two a while ago before it came out, so I haven't done it yet, but I've done it before, so I don't know. If... When do you write? When? Yeah. Early in the morning. About yeah. What, between three and four o'clock, I just started. Right. I actually fall asleep early, so it causes me to get early. I, I, I don't know why I fall asleep early and wake up early. That is why. So that's that's when you really do all your writing? Yep. Okay. They're very good stories. I like writing. I got four stories already done. Well, I think it's pretty amazing after all that you've been through that you've managed to write two books. Good for you. All right. Well, my um, my fiance she helps out a lot with it, with me. Like you know, I can show you, I can show you. Um, oh man, I had a lot of recordings. It's, it's a lot of stuff on YouTube from it too. I can show you recordings everything I had from the first book, and I mean I got a couple of recordings from the second book. I had a couple of recordings on you on Facebook and um on YouTube, but I don't really, I don't, I don't, I don't. Part two, I didn't do as much as part one. Like if you want, I, I could show you how to find it on part one. And part two. Actually, you can go to YouTube and just type in uh for part two. You can type in because I got an interview on there. My interview and my um the show for my Marciano. I'm just on YouTube under uh it's Leon Mason author. All right, so we can find out more about your book and uh, more about your life story by putting in Leon Mason author. All right, Leon, thank you. All right, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton Rossini. We hope to see you back here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and PodServe, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first.